0: Good evening, everyone, and welcome. We're very pleased that you could join us tonight for this celebration of the life and work of Lorraine Hansberry with our special guest, Soika Digg Colbert. She'll be introduced momentarily. I'm Diane Enns, the director of the Society for Women of Ideas, and I'm also a philosophy professor at Ryerson University, uh, which has kindly co-sponsored this event. This is the second event of the Society, and uh, we'll be hosting a third one on March 19th. If you're interested in learning more about that, please do check out our website, uh, womenofideas.com. The third event will be on uh, Maria Zambrano, a 20th century Spanish philosopher. Our objective is quite simple. The Society for Women of Ideas is to promote the work of women thinkers, practitioners, artists, uh, political theorists, uh, etc. Um, and I'm very grateful to my friends and colleagues, Brian Phillips and Antonio Calcagno, for embarking on this great adventure with me. I'd also like to thank Brianne Watkins, who is our uh, student assistant in the Society and she's here making sure that nothing calamitous happens with the technology. There will be a Q and A after the discussion and we are recording this session and posting it on our website. Brian Phillips will be guiding the conversation tonight. He's been working for more than 30 years as a human rights practitioner and educator, and he has a passion for theater, and for all things related to the American civil rights movement. So I'll turn it over to him now so he can introduce our guest and begin tonight's conversation. Brian.
1: Thank you, Diane, and good evening and thanks so much again to all of you for joining us. Uh, I'm delighted to welcome our special guest for the event, Soika Diggs-Colbert. Uh, Professor Colbert's rich and illuminating new biography places Lorraine Hansberry's work as a playwright, an an essayist, a journalist, and an activist at the very center of mid-20th century intellectual and cultural history. Radical Vision, which is published by Yale University Press, um, will be available in a paperback edition from next week. This is the book on Lorraine Hansberry that many of us have been waiting for. Uh, In Radical Vision, we see Hansbury not only as a groundbreaking, immensely gifted artist, but as a bold, clear-eyed thinker in urgent dialogue with everyone from W.E.B. Du Bois to Samuel Beckett, from Simone de Beauvoir to Nina Simone. Soika Diggs-Colbert is the idol, professor, idol, idol Family Professor of African American Studies and Performing Arts at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., Her previous books include Bodies, Theory for Theater Studies, Black Movements, Performance and Cultural Politics, and the African-American Theatrical Body. Professor Colbert's work has also appeared in journals such as Modern Drama, Theater Survey, Boundary Two, and American Theater. A theater scholar and practitioner, she's an associate director at the Shakespeare Theater Company in Washington, D.C., Such a pleasure to have you with us, Saika.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: I I wish we were uh, having you here with us in Toronto tonight, but I hope uh, we'll be able to do that again in some future occasion. It would be a pleasure to do that. Um, Let's start by talking a bit about Lorraine Hansberry's years of social and political formation. How did her childhood on the south side of Chicago in the 1930s and 40s helped to shape her vocation, both as an artist and an activist.
2: So in the book, I refer to Hansberry as a movement baby. And what I mean by that is she started learning about the civil rights movement from her parents when she was a child in the 1930s and 40s. And so the most well-known example of this is that her father, Carl Augustus Hansberry, who was a real estate agent, as well as an attorney, decided that he wanted to move his family to a neighborhood on the south side of Chicago, near where the University of Chicago is now in the United States. And the neighborhood in which he wanted to move his family into was governed by a racially restricted housing covenant, which meant that the community members in that neighborhood had gotten together and decided that they would only sell their homes to other white people. But someone in the neighborhood decided that they were going to sell their house to Carl. And so when the neighbors found out, they sued, and that set off a set of events that ultimately landed the case before the Supreme Court in um, Hansberry v. Lee, which is still taught at U.S. um, law schools today. And so Carl went off to Washington, D.C. to fight for his right to live in this neighborhood and ultimately to desegregate housing in the United States. Mind you, this is 1940, well before housing segregation becomes illegal in the United States. And so ultimately, the Supreme Court found that Carl, was, it was legal for Carl to own that house in that neighborhood, but they did not find that um, segregated housing in general was a violation of people's rights. And so Carl won the battle but lost the war for desegregation. So that's one part of the story, where Hansbury got an early lesson of the possibilities and the limits of using legal systems to fight segregation and to fight for civil rights. But the other piece that I think is important, and this comes up in some ways in A Raisin in the Sun, is that while Carl was off fighting for his family's rights in Washington, D.C., her mother, Nanny Louise Perry Hansberry, was protecting her home with a gun from the mobs that were jeering and spitting on her children um, and egging them on as they went to and from the house. At one point, um, Lorraine reflects in a journal entry that she was sitting in her living room and a piece of concrete was thrown through the window and it almost hit her. And so again, as a child, she saw her mother having to physically defend their home and also what the real life implications of desegregation was in a Northern US city in the 1940s. Um, and for some of your viewers, you know, most of the times when we think about the civil rights movement in the US, it's concentrated on activities in the South but I think it's important to note that there was also a lot of activities that were happening in the North and major U.S. cities as well. And so Hansberry sees all of this activity happening. I and mean, it informs her writing, her ideas about the world, her as a thinker, her as an intellectual. Um, and it comes out in her art in really important ways. As I said, um, in this case, we see some of these activities manifesting themselves in how she describes the central, um, cl- the central conflict in A Raisin in the Sun.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder if you could just say a little bit about um, the close of this incredible story of, of her father, Carl, um, who, after this incredible experience of, as you say, kind of winning the battle but losing the war, um, is so disenchanted that he goes into almost a kind of self-imposed exile. Um, it, that That also, I feel, is such an important part of her formation.
2: Absolutely so. Hansberry's father decides that, you know, the United States is not does not allow him the freedom that he desires. And so he decides with his wife that they're going to retire and move to Mexico. And while looking for their home abroad, he has a mass, he has an aneurysm and he dies suddenly. Um, and so Hansberry is left um, without a father and her mother ultimately comes back to the States and, and remains in Chicago. Um, but one of the things that Hansberry says in a speech when she was reflecting on her father's death, there's two things that I think are instructive. So one, she says that she thinks American racism helped to kill him. And another thing that she says is she thinks that her father was wrong about giving up on America. Mm -hmm. And this is an interesting, um, I think, point for Hansberry to make because she has this visceral um, experience of the impact of racism on her family, but yet she still sees the US as a place that can be redeemed. Um, and you see this again coming up in her relationships with W.E.B. Du Bois, who also ends up being an expat. You see this in her relationship with Baldwin, who is an expat for a good portion of his life. Um, you see this in her relationship with Paul Robeson, who you know has his own struggles with American racism. And so, all of these figures in her life have similar trajectories, but yet Hansberry still comes to the conclusion that there's a way to redeem the U.S. I mean, I think that that's a powerful expression of her ideas philosophically, as well as politically.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, she spends a couple of years studying at the University of Wisconsin and then arrives in New York City in the early 1950s. Um, it's a very exciting, but also rather risky time for people on the left. Um, how does Lorraine Hasbury immerse herself then in the world of the black radical tradition of that period?
2: So I'm so delighted that we, I was invited to talk about Hansberry as an event for the Society of Women of Ideas, because in the 1950s, there are very few women who would be considered intellectuals. I mean, even today, I think that there's um, a way that we understand intellectuals in gendered terms. And so at the time, Hansberry arrives in New York. She's a young, um, she's only 20 years old when she comes to New York. Um, and she starts working for Paul Robeson's um, leftist periodical Freedom. Paul Robeson is a you know, famous singer, activist, actor, um, who by that point in 1950 has been blacklisted because his, his associations with the Communist Party. And so Hansberry is working at Freedom. Um, and down the hall, W.E.B. Du Bois has an office. So she's interacting with um, Du Bois and his wife. Um, Louis Burnham, who is also a leftist, works in the Freedom offices. She co-writes a piece with Alice Childress, who's a playwright, also a leftist. So all of these older generations of leftists, people who were born 10, 15 years before Hansberry, are her mentors at this time, and she's learning from them. But what's important, I think, to note is that because Hansberry is young, she's black, she's female, um, she doesn't draw the same attention from um, the red scare as her mentors do, and so. One thing that happens is Hansberry is able to travel um, in Robeson's place to a peace conference abroad um, in Uruguay in 1952, because Paul Robeson's passport has been revoked because of his associations with the left. And again, Hansberry is able to get a passport and travel to Uruguay because she's not on anyone's radar. She's not on the FBI's radar yet. Although she, after she goes back from Uruguay, they begin to follow her. And so um, she's assumed to not be threatening um, which is part of the sexism and the racism at the time, but then it also works on her advantage because she's able to work in areas and with people um, that her mentors in the older generation are not able to do as freely at that time.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, and how does her activism and her work during this period in the 50s um, widen the frame of her understanding of the Black freedom struggle?
2: So Hansberry, as I said, is writing for freedom, which is a Black leftist periodical She's also writing for Masses and Mainstream, which is a white leftist periodical. Um, in 1957, she writes her well-known letters to the Ladder, which is a gay, which is a lesbian periodical. Um, and at the same time, I think this is important. By 1957, she's also drafting a Raisin in the sun. And so, although our image of Hansberry, because she's married, is this young, beautiful, black she's described at the time as housewife. Um, she is this, for a decade before Raising the son. or well, nine years before Raising the son premieres on Broadway, she is writing in all of these leftist periodicals, some really radical stuff, and in these lesbian periodicals. And so she is developing and writing stories about independence movements in Africa, about housing evictions, She's organizing with this group of women called the Sojourners for Truth and Justice that at one point go to um, the United States to advocate um, against racialized violence. So lynchings that are happening, police violence. So many of the things that are similar to our current moment in the United States and some that parallel it in terms of access to to civil rights. And so Hansberry is covering all these things in newspapers. And again, those become the seeds of issues that she takes up in her plays later. And so the independence movements that we see in LeBlanc, she's writing about them happening in the early 1950s in the pages of freedom.
1: Yeah, this this continuum um, between the domestic struggle and the global struggle is something that just really seems to kind of um, flower during these years in in New York in the 1950s. Um, Oh, sorry, go ahead, please.
2: No, I mean, the other thing that I would just say um, just quickly on that point is that, um, you know, Robin Kelly and others have argued, I think, cogently that the international frame of freedom struggles doesn't disappear during the 40s and 50s. But it definitely is de-emphasized in many of the political movements because there's so much um, there's such a bright light on any activities that have to do with the communist party. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that Hansberry's work shows us is the ways that work continued even under the specter of um, anti-communism in in the specter of the Cold War and the Red Scare. Mm
1: -hmm. Absolutely, yeah. She's she's also doing a lot of other reading during this time. I wonder if you could just say a little bit about some of those influences and the interactions there.
2: So Hansberry is... um, informed very deeply by the writing and the work of um, the black radical black radicals so she's taking classes with Du Bois he calls her one of her his favorite students um, she has an uncle named William Leo Hansberry who's one of the first africanist professors at Howard University and he's sending her articles about independence movements in africa so that's another way that her attention to internationalism is nurtured She's also engaging with um, the conversations that are emerging in the downtown New York Bohemian scene around existentialism, which becomes a really important part of the theater community's um, interests in the 1950s and into the 1960s. And so she writes a scathing and perhaps, um, perhaps at this time she might rethink it, but a scathing review of Richard Wright's novel, The Outsider, she writes a love letter um, in a review of the Second Sex, which she devours when she, when it 's um, translated into English um, and she has a chance to read it and She really sees the second sex as a guiding text. Um, one of the things that I think is useful though is the only point of disagreement that Hansberry has um, with du Beauvoir in the in the review is that she does she says that the book does not take the idea of feminist materialism far enough. And so one of the things that I think Hansberry, the way she differs from the existentialists, is that she doesn't see the individual's freedom as ending in themselves, ending in their death, right? So that the existentialists believe that each individual has a responsibility to act and that that action has an impact on how they live their lives. Hansberry understood individuals' activities as having impact not only on their lives, but as a part of a movement for change. Mm. Um, and I think that, again, has to do with her intergenerational community. And so that is one way that she both borrows from the existentialists and, and builds on them outward. And I think that also has to do with her reading in the Black radical tradition. So again, the work of Du Bois, the work of Robeson, um, her engagement with her peers, um, such as James Baldwin, for example.
1: Mm. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah. Um, In the book, you capture so much that I think is really essential about Hansberry's thinking and her art uh, when you describe her conviction that, as you say, freedom is not a state of being, but a practice. Um, Can you tell us what this means for Lorraine Hansberry and her work, both both published work and some of the unpublished work that you had the, the great fortune to have a chance to sift through?
2: So one of the things that I think is helpful for folks to know is that Hansberry was extremely prolific. And so you like I might be, um, might not realize that because so little of her work has been published particularly of her, even of her creative work. And I must admit with my arrogance when I had my fellowship at the Schomburg and I went to go and engage with her papers to write this book I thought that the scale of her writing matched the scale of her published work. And so you would imagine my surprise when you see the volume of work that she's created. As I said, she's writing for periodicals for nine years before she publishes, before Raising the Sun is produced. And so Hansberry was writing all of the time. It's just that a lot of her work wasn't finished when she died and or had not been produced when she died. And so what you see is um, her constantly drafting things, um, working on several projects at the same time, mulling over ideas, revising them, thinking about them again. And I see this as a part of a practice, a meditative practice that she had where she continued to refine and work on things over time. And I relate that to her vision for, for how politics works. Um, and so I think the, the, the short thing that I'll say is, you know, as I noted, Hansberry says that racism helped to kill her father. And one of the misconceptions that is sometimes held in the United States is that the victories of the civil rights movement, the passing of the Voting Rights Act, the March on Washington, um, Brown, Brown versus Board of Education decision, they sort of happen. And there are these moments that we leap forward into history. But what Hansberry's life and legacy shows us is all of the incremental steps that it took to get to those victories and how people were working on a daily basis to create the infrastructure for this change. And so if you just study Brown v. Board of Education, for example, you'll see all of the cases that were tried in anticipation of this case that the ACP finally saw as one that could be the turning point for overturning segregation. Um, And so that is an example that Hansberry takes up in her life because she once again, saw how desegregation was shifting over time from her father's attempt to dismantle it in 1940 until we have Brown be born in 1954. So that's just one example of how Hansberry understood that um, justice movements and the Black movement for freedom was something that was unfolding every day in our choices, going back to existentialism and our day-to-day choices over time. And that in order to build a strong infrastructure for change that we needed to be actively engaged in that practice on a day-to-day basis.
1: Yeah. I, I think you, you um, give such a great emphasis to this way in which for her, everything is about process, isn't it? It's, mm-hmm. this, this is so crucial to her thinking. Yeah,
2: absolutely. And, you know, and for her, and I think that this is also powerful, artists and and writers were a part of that, mm. um, that the activity of writing was a part of this freedom movement that she, uh, she understood, and that was her contribution in large part to black freedom struggles.
1: Yeah and then on a very on on a much more personal level um, I love in the book how you you suggest that writing for Hansberry becomes this limitless space for self-creation.
2: Yeah so she's able to explore the different parts of her and her writing um, parts that are less safe for her to be public about um, in the 1950s or, or spaces that she's just trying to figure out for herself. I mean one of the things that we should be mindful of is because she was so clear-eyed about her politics. And when you listen to her give speeches, she's so um, forceful. You can sometimes forget that she was a 20-something living in New York City, trying to figure herself out. And so you see some of that in her journals, the way that she's, you know, questioning um, herself and her choices, and she's ambivalent, and she's second-guessing, which doesn't really come out as much in her public presentation, and so part of that for me was very helpful because of the, what I tell my students is that, you know, she shows you you can be scared and bold at the same time, like it really humanizes who she was in the world, and so um, she was exploring different parts of herself in her writing, and also, Exploring what the possibilities were, so she was giving us a possible uh, the um, exploring the imagination as a way of thinking about what could be possible,
1: mm-hmm. um,
2: which is how she describes realism—not just what is, but what is possible.
1: Yeah, that's that's wonderful. Yeah, and in the book, you also I I, I was so struck by how you explored Lorraine Hansberry's wariness of tightly defined categories of identity. Um, You you underline in the book um, how important it is to resist attempts to pin her down, really, in any kind of very, very specific or narrow way. Um, A a favorite uh, line of mine from this section of the book is when you, you, you say that, quote, categorizing Hansberry as a Black lesbian member of the Communist Party enriches a genealogy but doesn't challenge the social categories that constrained women in the 1950s. Um, can you tell us a, a bit more about the Hansberry you describe in that sentence?
2: So I want to emphasize that Hansberry did identify as a lesbian. It, um, if some of you might be familiar with an exhibit at the Brooklyn Academy of Arts that contained lists that Hansberry used to keep, on her birthdays where she had likes and dislikes and on the list she talks about herself as a lesbian she does so in her journals so i certainly want to make it clear that she identifies a lesbian that she identifies as a communist um and at the same time in her letters to the ladder which as i said was a, a lesbian periodical one of the things that she asked the latter so she writes a letter in response to this story that today we would think of as talking about identity politics and so the story is about how if lesbians dress a certain way, they might be more socially accepted. And Hansberry um, responds by saying that Ralph Bunch, who's one of um, an African, well-known well, well known, um, political figure in the United States, African-American man, she says that as finely dressed as Ralph Bunch is, he could still be um, attacked because of his race. And she uses this as exa- the example to say that um, you know, I di- that um, respectability politics will not end homophobia. And so, part of what Hansberry is trying to draw attention to is how her experience as a Black woman specifically informs her understanding of what it means to be a lesbian at that time. And so one of the things that she's doing is trying to make that category more expansive to allow for different presentations of gender. That's the way we would talk about it now. They weren't using that type of language in the 19, in 1957. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that I want, I try to accomplish in the book is to show how Hans Bear was breaking all these categories. So as I said before, if you read stories about her in Life magazine and other uh, mainstream periodicals, she's described as a housewife. But by 1950s tradition, she, was, she, was, she didn't cook. She didn't clean. <laughs> she didn't have children. She was, you know, um, made her own money. She lived separately from Robert Nimrod for most of their marriage. Um, and so these categories that were ascribed to women, did, she didn't fit into them. And, I, and she graded against them in her both public and private writing. I think that that's part of what she was trying to press us. Like, what do we mean by the category of woman? And this comes up in the second sex. What do we mean by the category of lesbian? how does it account for a black woman in this time period?
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, it just, uh, you absolutely come away from the book with this sense of every category is too small for Lorraine Hansberry. She's just, <laughs> she's so imaginative. She's so creative. Um, and, and she defies pigeonholing, um, again and again throughout her life, I think. Yeah, uh, And, and one of the many sadnesses one feels is, is, um, and again, we'll come to this a bit later. She she, she dies at the uh, incredible age of 34 of cancer. And it's just so amazing to think about where she would have gone had she had 60 years, 80 years uh, of life, because she was constantly busting out of boxes of all kinds, wasn't she?
2: Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, as we move toward a discussion of her landmark 1959 play, A Raisin in the Sun, which I'm, I'm sure many people um, know at least um, from the film, if not from the, the play itself. Um, I'd like to explore another dimension of Hansbury's thinking that seems so crucial to her activism and her thinking. Um, I'm thinking of, of her insistence on the primacy of relationships, of the encounter uh, as the foundation for political and social action. Um, you say in the book that that her political practices foreground quotidian activity as fundamental to political freedom movements. What did this focus on the everyday material realities of Black lives and struggle mean in the context of the civil rights movement? You touched on this a little earlier, but perhaps this is a good space to to expand that a bit.
2: So Hansberry has this lovely interview that she does with Studs Terkel in 1959 after Raising in the Sun is produced on Broadway. And he asked her about Walter Lee and her um, characterization of him in the play. And one of the things that Hansberry says is that Walter Lee's choice to move is part of an affirmative movement that she ties to the independence movements that are happening in Africa. And in the play, I think she, she um, links it to, you know, Asagai's description of the independence movements that are happening in his country. And so one of the things I think is important for us to consider as we're reading A Raisin in the Sun is not whether or not the youngers should move, which is what comes up in, you know, Clybourne Park and other plays that are responding to A Raise in the Sun in the contemporary moment, But rather, what does it mean for Walter Lee to be making this decision in this moment, understanding that he's moving to a part of a neighborhood where he'll be met with hostility? He knows about the violence that will happen there. Mrs. Johnson comes to the apartment and brings a newspaper and tells them what's happening to the um, families that are integrating neighborhoods. So he's clear what the dangers are when he makes that choice. So Hansberry is very... um, invested in thinking about, once again, how our day-to-day choices about how we live our lives, what we decide to stand up for, feeds into a larger picture of freedom and possibility. The other thing that I think is really useful philosophically in that moment is that Hansberry calls for the family to be in the space when Carl tells, um, when Walter Lee tells Carl Lindner that they plan to occupy the house. And so as he's having this encounter, this exchange with this man who wants them to you know, resell the house, the family is looking on as witnesses. And so one of the ways that Hansberry, I think, adds to the dynamic of the encounter that's often staged in existentialist literature is that she uses the theater and the idea of witness as a way to ripple the impact of encounters. And so it's not only for the encounter and the existentialist dynamic, there, the question is whether or not the other person can recognize you, right? And so France Manon says, no, someone who's different from you, can." there's never an ability to recognize, and so there's always an impasse. I mm-hmm. mean, um, that's one of the tragedies, right, of the encounter. But what Hansberry offers us is that even if there is an inability in the moment for the person you're in the encounter with to recognize you, there is some reciprocal effect for people who are bearing witness to this encounter, the audience. The audience staged in the play, us as the audience of the play, and that that also produces an ability for recognition that can be transformative. Um, And so for me Hansberry's work in theater allows for an expansion of this idea in really powerful ways and also helps us to understand how it might map onto our day-to-day activities. And so there's several scenes um, in Hansberry's writing and her short stories that she wrote before Raisin where these, um, these moments of encounter with witnesses, people walking down the street, these day-to-day activities where things are shifting for the person's life, maybe not at a global scale, that she stages as important as we think about the movement as this interlocking set of events that ultimately leads to these big moments in history.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And um, I, I think it's so important here to talk a bit about the way in which um, As you say in the book, there's a a quote that where you say many civil rights organizations encourage black women to aspire toward white ideals of domesticity and leave the battle for civic inclusion to men operating in the public sphere. Um, A Raisin in the Sun, I I think, um, is, is, is so important in getting a sense of how Hansberry is saying, these great moments that happen in these public spaces are, 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 are an important part of what the movement's doing, but it's also being, the struggle's being waged in domestic spaces, in in homes. And the women are, are yes, perhaps you may think are, are, are in traditional roles in these settings, but actually look at how much more complicated the reality really is. And what if you could say a bit about that in terms of raising in the Sun, because that, that that I think is, is such a, a part of the richness of what she's doing in the play.
2: So much of the civil rights battles in the U.S. are staged in public places. Mm -hmm. So when we think about the iconic images of the civil rights movement, we think of, at least I think of, sit-ins, photographs of sit-ins, the March on Washington, uh, marches, um, protests out in the streets. Um, Even, you know, thinking about Freedom Summer and images of people on buses, and then the violence that it hears thereafter, and again, a public um, transportation. Mm-hmm. But what is not as visible is that there are also struggles for Hansberry's father for desegregation of housing, which was a much more stubborn battle that has yet to be resolved, quite frankly, in the United States in 2022. Um, and it was a, and partially because it, that battle is about individual property rights versus public space. And one of the things that the play helps us to understand is how how private space gets mapped onto gender in the US, particularly in the 1950s and how we understand domestic space as being women's space um, and how that is de-emphasized in the civil rights movement period. And so that these categories of thinking about private space, domestic space, women, become compounding factors, not only to how we think about where the battle should take place, but also arguably the outcomes of those battles. Um, And so one of the things that Hansberry is able to artfully do in redirecting us to a private space is to get us to think about racial capitalism or the way that race maps against um, gender and how it maps in terms of class and labor and how that can also be a battlefield for how we're thinking about, about freedom struggles. Um, And so in her characterization of the women in the house, you see the different ways that they are laboring in traditional and non-traditional ways and how that informs the outcome of what the family is able to ultimately to move because Walter Lee gives away his portion of the money, right? And so the reason they're actually able to move is because mama puts a down payment on the house and they decide together that they're as a family that they're going to move. And so I think that, you know, thinking about, why today in the United States in 2022, even though segregation is illegal, almost every major US city in the United States remains deeply segregated. Mm. And whenever I show my students the maps of Chicago when I'm teaching this and how it remains segregated, it's always astounding to them, but it has everything to do with our history of, of property rights in the US and how we think about who or how private space should be governed. Um, particularly domestic space. And so I think the play um, does a good job of drawing our attention to where else civil rights battles need to unfold.
1: And, and it's fascinating. Um, you made me think a lot about the reception of the play and the ways in which um, some of the critics, some of the audiences even, um, were, were, were clearly made uncomfortable by this and so tried to kind of tame the play in a way to make it a kind of conventional story about a family that that begins to realize the American dream and um, that incredible critique of the ruthlessness of American capitalism is is missing Um, what if you could say a bit about that response to the play um, and how Hansberry herself experienced that in some of the the interviews she was giving around the time Um, you just think how is it that these people, are, are they just missing this, or are they choosing not to see what the play is really about?
2: I think it's both. I mean, you know, Raising the Sun, part of the right reason why it's so commercially valuable is because it is a realist drama set in, you know, a U.S. household in the 1950s that's very similar to what's commercially successful by Tennessee Williams and Arthur Miller at the time. Um, so, it does have those aspects um, of a realist drama and its commercial viability during the period. At the same time, though, I do think that if Hansberry, you know, had the same sequence of events happened in the 21st century, then we would have had a completely different story because sometimes it's unbelievable to me that no one picked up on the fact that she had been writing and left this periodical. She was publishing under her name. It wasn't if the, these things were hiding. Um, You know, journals could have uncovered them, but we didn't have search engines back then and no one was looking for it, right? Everyone just thought that she was this young um, woman who wrote a play and it just was, you know, this hit out of nowhere. She just fell out of nowhere. That's how she was perceived. And so they didn't have the backstory that we have of her writing in these other places as a way to think alongside of what she's doing in the play too. And so both those contexts, what's happening in the American theater scene as well as this being the first work that they're introduced, that the American um, general po- public is introduced to her as a playwright. But even given all of that, I do wonder um, how everyone overlooks Asa Guy's speech at the end, mm-hmm. which really draws clear attention to Hansberry, at least asking the question around post-colonial movements mm-hmm. and how, you know, Benita responds to that. And so even if you just read A Raising the Sun* as a family in pursuit of the American dream and they have to face a couple more hurdles because they're Black, um, then you still have to contend with Asagai's speech at the end about post-colonialism and his indictment where he says, what does it mean for all the dreams in this house to depend on the death of one man? Mm -hmm. And so in that moment, Asagai is drawing attention to how inheritance and capitalist inheritance and property rights are tied to um, intergenerational wealth and you know this is of course a legacy of slavery um, and how that informs and enables them to have all of these dreams and so he's having both a jarring critique of capitalism in that moment and he's also linking it to post-colonial movements and so I think even if you're able to reconcile the play with the American theater movement's investment at that time period, that speech draws a certain challenge. Yeah,
1: yeah, and I, I also just coming back to the the very crucial point you were making earlier about the place of witnesses. I think um, this character of Asagai, who for those of you who who maybe haven't seen the play or, or read the play for a long time, he's a he's a Nigerian student who's studying in Chicago and and befriends the one a member of the family. Um, and and he's he's sort of looking on and 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 he's a witness isn't he in a very important way in this play yeah. um, and and seeing that ruthlessness of of american capitalism in a way that that that's maybe too close for everybody else to see
2: yeah so i should have said for those who will go back and read a Raising the Sun again after this <laughs> conversation as the guy um, is the suitor of one of the main characters beneath who's the daughter in the play Um, And so he comes to know her and her interests in post-colonial movements and thinks of her as this, um, you know, budding activist. And so when he comes to to find her lamenting the fact that Walter Lee has lost the money that was left to him, he doesn't understand why she's so forlorn, given the fact that he doesn't think that um, her dream should be dependent on an inheritance.
1: Just after Hensbury has this incredible success, and again, to remind people, um, uh, she, she was the first African-American woman to have a play produced on Broadway. She was incredibly young. Um, it, it had a good, solid run um, in, the, in the New York Theatre, and then, of course, is, is performed all over the world. Um, a couple of years later, the film is released. Um, just after this incredible success, Um, Hansberry's commissioned to write a television play for uh, the American network NBC. Um, And she writes this brilliant, visceral story about slavery and its toxic impact on an entire society um, called The Drinking Gourd. Um, In the book, you tell the story of how it's literally shoved into a drawer at NBC and never sees the light of day. Um, And this is a a shout out to anybody who's a theater producer or director watching this because this unperformed piece really should be reclaimed. Um, The drinking courts are remarkable, but sadly still almost unknown part of her body of work. Um, Can you tell us a bit more about this amazing play and and what happened here?
2: So Hansberry is commissioned to write this play. Uh, She jokes in a subsequent radio conversation with, um, Langston Hughes. She's part of a conversation, and she jokes that it's one of the few times where she's paid to write something, and it's never, you know, produced. It's just shoved into this drawer. Um, but one of the things that I think, you know, in most of Hansberry's work, she's so prescient, she's so ahead of her time, and I think that that's the case with the Drinking Gourd too. And so, for me, the Drinking Gourd still, even today, achieves some things that are contemporary filmic um, and theater engagements with slavery do not. And so one of, so the play is about um, this group of enslaved black people in the United States and this family. And one of the main characters name is Hannibal and he is um, resistant to everything that slavery prescribes for an enslaved person. And so at one point in the play, so he's always trying to undermine the system of slavery. And so at one he's learning to read which is of course illegal for slaves. And um, at one point in the play, it's found out that he's learning to read. And so his owner tells the overseer to blind him. And so it's stunning if you read Hansberry's um, camera directions, because what she um, writes is that as Hannibal is being blinded, this, this um, act of brutality, which, if you're familiar with contemporary narratives of filmic depictions of slavery in the US, would probably be filmed as a sort of gruesome depiction of the Black body in pain. But what Hansberry calls for is that you hear Hannibal crying out, and the camera is focused on the slave owner riding off. And so what happens is Hansberry places the injury, not with Hannibal, With the person who called for it. And so you never see Hannibal being mutilated, which is what you see in 12 Years a Slave and these other really, you know, iconic films of slavery that are heart wrenching. You never see the mutilated, the person being, um, the enslaved person being injured. What you see is the person that called for the injury, that that sound of anguish being attached to him. And so that's just one example of the way that I think that Hansberry is thinking about how we might depict slavery for a film of audience differently. Um, the other thing that's useful um, about the film to my mind is that at the end of the published version of the play, which anyone can you know, um, buy and read, and I encourage you to do so, perhaps produce, Um, at the end, um, Hansberry, uh, the published version, Hannibal runs away with his girlfriend and his nephew. But as I say in the, um, end of, in the epilogue to my book, in an unpublished version of the play, Hansberry scripts that his girlfriend and his nephew run off together. She has the baby in one hand and a shotgun in the other. And... To me, it's so fascinating because it thinks about how we might understand family differently and alternative notions of family, families that we choose. It, again, you know, harkens back to Harriet Tubman and Hansberry's own mother as a woman practicing self-defense. And it also changes how we might understand the idea of the fugitive or the runaway as being a woman versus a man. And so Hansberry was complicating all of that iconography um, in, in, you know, in, the 19, in the early 1960s, in nineteen sixty.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I, likewise, I, I encourage everybody to to read this because it's it's and it's it's just so sad to me that that nobody has seized it and produced it yet. Um, it it would be, I think, it would work terrifically in a theater as well. Um, the next play that that gets produced um, in New York for for Lorraine Hansberry is The Sign in Sydney Brewstein's Window. Uh, it's it's on Broadway in 1964. Um, this was the time when when Hansberry was terminally ill with cancer, and she dies at the age of 34 in January 1965. Mm -hmm. Um, The play is a really astute and often wickedly funny. Look at this whole radical milieu of Greenwich Village in the 1950s and 60s. Um, It's a world that she certainly knew inside and out. Um, And at the time, it was seen by many people as quite a turn from the landscape of A Raisin in the Sun. Um, But I think one of the things you do in the book in discussing the play is to help us actually see the the continuity of this play with the whole of her work. Um, What what do you see as Hansberry's intention in in this much underappreciated play? And what are we missing in allowing it so often to take a back seat, say, to A Raisin in the Sun?
2: So some of the central questions that a Raising the Sun asks emerge again in Sign and Sidney Brewstein's window. So Hansberry was um, interested in questions about choice, about freedom, about despair. All of these are questions, again, that are central to the existentialist and are at the heart of Sign and Sidney Brustein's window. And in this case, Hansberry is curious and thinking about these questions in relationship to an activist community. But similar to Raisin, it's set in a domestic space. It's thinking about gender politics and the um, tension between Iris and Sydney. Um, It's thinking more expansively about community and the neighbors that come in and out and the friends that come in and out of the apartment. Um, And it's thinking more, I think, energetically about the role of the artist, which is made more explicit um, in this play. And so there are parts that Hansberry or things that Hansberry that is interested in that come more to the forefront in this, in this play and sign. But then there are also ways that the play has a similar structure or some, you know, encased in a similar way as a raisin in the sun, domestic drama, you know, thinking about some of these questions about choice and possibility and agency and making how choices might lead to, you know, the ripple effects of freedom down the line. And it also, Resonates, I think, really profoundly with where Hansberry is in her own life. And so, as you mentioned, you know, she's dying of cancer. She's finishing um, Sign. She is wrestling with the fact that she's this public figure now, and she doesn't know if she's having the impact that she wants to have as an activist. Um, She's wrestling with her own feeling of mortality at the same time that she wants to continually be active in movement her own depression that she's constantly wrestling with. And so all of those things come up really profoundly um, in Sign. And then, of course, the the last piece is, you know, you have this woman who is this big hit because she's the first Black woman to have a a play on Broadway. Um, And, you know, some of the anecdotes about the play, you have Black people coming from around the country to New York because they've heard that there's a play for them in New York. Mm -hmm. And so what does it mean for her to be writing a play now that has all white characters except for one right this is everyone i mean it's so she's already sort of this anomaly in the world of broadway and now she's doing this thing that even now if a black writer were to write a a television show let's say with only white characters i could imagine that being met with some surprise and so this is similar to to what hansbury is doing at the time and the public just doesn't know how to make sense of it
1: yeah yeah, and again, exploding expectations and, and, and boxes um, all the time. Um, as you and know, I have talked about before, one of the things I really value about this play is its unflinching look at the costs of a life of intense social and political engagement, costs that affect one individually, affect relationships, affect communities. Um, she's got such a keen understanding of the potential exhaustion of a life of activism. Um, And I think anybody who's who's been an activist at any time in their life will be nodding their head when they hear the the central character, Sydney, say, "Um, I admit that I no longer have the energy, the purity, or the comprehension to save the world. I'm afraid that I have experienced the death of the exclamation point. It has died in me. I no longer want to exhort anybody about anything. Since I was 18, I belonged to every committee to save, to abolish, prohibit, preserve, reserve, and conserve that ever was. And the result is that the mere thought of a movement to do anything chills my bones. Um, that, that's an incredible speech in the play, but, but what the play also shows us is how this emotionally shattered man begins to find his way back from retreat and summons up fresh energy and hope for further struggle, um, how do you see that narrative arc um, reflecting some of Hensbury's own experience as an activist, and, and as you were saying, also a very public intellectual in her tongue?
2: So in the play, one of the ways that Sidney finds his way back is that he betrays himself and betrays his principles, and he realizes the cost of him um, not sticking to his principles to ins- cost him personally and then cost the community that he um, is invested in. And so once he begins to compromise um, as an easier way of being living in the world, he realizes that too has its own cost, right? And so him being so strident is exhausting for him. And so then his alternative to that is to be more compromising in the world. But then he realizes that has its own impact that he also can't live with and so I knew that we were going to talk about this bit and so I wanted to read for me read for you from the book um this quote I have from Hansberry and she writes it on July 17th in her journal 1964 and as you noted she dies in January 65 so this is six months before she passed away so Hansberry writes have the feeling I should throw myself back into the movement become a human being again but that very impulse is immediately flushed with a thousand vacillations and forbidding images. I see myself lying in a pool of perspiration in a dark tenement room, recalling Croton and the trees and longing for death. Comfort has come to be its own corruption. I think of lying without a painkiller in pain. In all the young years, no such image ever occurred to me. I rather look forward to going to jail once. Now I can hardly imagine surviving it at all. Comfort, apparently I have sold my soul for it. I think when I get my health back, I shall go into the South to find out what kind of revolutionary I am. And so even in Hansberry's journal entries, you see her struggling with the same sense of defeat, of um, the death of the exclamation point of her own, you know, evolution as she she goes from being sitting on picket signs and meeting her husband to becoming this superstar darling, liberal, understood as liberal darling and the comfort that adheres by way of that and her struggling with her fame. Um, But what's most powerful for me is at the end of that meditation, she says that she wants to go down to the South and see what kind of revolutionary I am. And so Hansberry was very transparent about the fact that, you know, making choices that were towards freedom were not easy, were not uncomplicated, were not um, without their own um, seductions. But at the end of the day, what she tried to model was how one could still make those hard choices. And I think. That Sydney's life and his evolution, the play, it is, is an example of even if you don't get it right every time, there's a way to still move the needle towards a more expansive version of freedom. Yeah,
1: yeah, no, it's. I mean, hers is such an incredible activist life, and um, for anybody interested in sort of life stories connected with with social movements and activism. That's reason enough to come to your book, certainly, um, for sure. Um, You've mentioned um, what what really comes to be regarded as her final play, Les Blancs, which is um, only performed after her death in 1970, isn't really even finished at the time of her death. Um, And it brings us back to this lifelong commitment to seeing the Black freedom struggle as something of a a global project, um, Mm -hmm. as you mentioned. Um, it's set in an imagined African country at the time of independence, brink of violent conflict. Um, one of the things that's so powerful for me in the play is the way she seems to be cautioning, cautioning us against any excessive romanticism about revolutionary struggle, that she's so, she's so alert in the play to just the sheer difficulty of achieving transformation in any society. Um, and that even that might end up involving tragic choices. Um, how does she work through these dilemmas in the play? And and what do you think makes this piece, which again, she she more or less left unfinished at her death, what, what makes it worth reviving today?
2: One of the, so Hansberry is more similar to Ella Jo Baker than she is to Martin Luther King in the sense that she writes about thinking, she says that all activities toward freedom should be on the table. And she has this model of working through the courts by way of her father and a self-defense by way of her mother. And she doesn't romanticize either one, right? And so she knows the limits of the courts and the possibilities of the courts. And she also knows the limits of self-defense and the possibilities therein. Um, And so one of the things that LeBlanc draws our attention to is, you know, the, the ways that, freedom struggles may result in having to make, as you said, tragic tragic choices, and Hansberry is well aware of the impact of that because she's been following the independence movements in Africa since the 1950s. And so one of the things that happens, you know, um, in the post-colonial movements is that we see a lot of African countries gaining independence, and they're not having the totalizing democratic outcomes that one would hope for. Um, and this becoming a space of great sorrow um, for academics and other political thinkers who are thinking, you know, once Africans have independence or any, you know, post-colonial nation in Latin America or elsewhere have independence, that they will have, you know, this utopian space of possibility. And Hansberry understood that, um, you know, as I said, as we talked about before, that freedom is a process, not a destination. Um, and therefore, you know, gaining independence is not the end of the struggle towards a, a more full flourishing democracy. And so that comes up in Les Blanc and the speeches, and the conversations that emerge um, when the main character realizes the in a, the impasse that he's at in terms of diplomacy and having to make a choice about whether or not he'll participate in armed resistance or not. And then this also, again, you know, going back to Raising a Son comes up when Asagai beneath his suitor, the daughter suitor, Um, talks to her about the future he sees for his country. And he says that even as he's battling for freedom now, there might be some point where someone, some young revolutionary has to come slit his useless throat because he's no longer working towards the betterment of his country. And so again, you know, Hansberry is very clear that each individual's choices may not result in the, um, well, not the end struggle, Right. That struggle is an ongoing process, but that these difficult decisions have to be made and that there's not a one size fits all way of doing things. And so for her, she really deeply believed that nothing was off the table and that we had to explore every option of creating a more um, expansive democratic possibility. And she doesn't mean that in um, a nationalist sense, per se, but really thinking about a global movement for freedom.
1: Yeah. Yeah, uh, we we should say that um, for those of you interested in this play, which is fascinating, um, and if any of you are Shakespeareans, passionate Shakespeareans, it's also in one way a kind of a retelling of the Hamlet story, um, which is fascinating in itself. But um, the National Theatre in London uh, did a, a production of the play a couple of years ago, directed by a, a South African woman, um, and um, it, it certainly made a space, I think, for for conversation among theatre goers and theatre scholars for this play. Um, I believe it's still available. If you go to the National Theatre website, um, there's a range of recent productions that they've made available online during this pandemic period, and Les Blancs was one of them. And so it's a great opportunity to see this play, which is fascinating. Um, And and ironically, kind of the incompletion of it, Mm -hmm. um, as you've been saying, it kind of, that's kind of, part of the story. It's it's about the incompletion of life and the incompletion of struggle in itself. So I do encourage people, if that is still there, to to take a look at it. Um, We're almost um, at the end of our conversation, and we're going to see if there's some questions. I I hope we have lots of questions out there. Um, But I just want to say um, something else that I think is so important about about this book. Um, To me, it's it's an indispensable addition um, to this a long overdue series of books which have been coming out in recent years about women whose thinking and action were absolutely central to the unfolding of the Black freedom struggle. Um, Up until a few decades ago, um, I've often said civil rights movement historiography sometimes seems like a shrine to male leadership, um, a lot of the conventional narratives, and that, that a whole range of women Um, who were doing so much of the really fundamental work of these movements was either diminished or downplayed in some way. Um, What's been wonderful is that over the last, I would say, two decades or so, we've we've now got this series of great studies of women like Ella Baker, Septima Clark, Fannie Lou Hamer, uh, Louise Thompson Patterson, Polly Murray, Gloria Richardson. And even just last week, another one came out on um, Constance Baker Motley. And Hansbury, I think, absolutely belongs on that bookshelf. Her, her, her contribution to these movements was unique. It was all her very own. Um, and I wonder what, for you, Sika, as a scholar, it's meant to um, have this, this emergence of this library now, of these, these lives of these women, um, and, and, and to feel a sense of, of, of contributing to it now with, with this study, as I think you have.
2: Well, I'm so grateful to be in this company um, because some of the books that you've mentioned or some of the figures and um, their books that you've mentioned were models for me as I was writing this book. Um, and also it's exciting for me as someone who works in the arts and who is a professor of performing arts to think about how a artist is contributing to both the vision and on the grounds movement towards freedom during the civil rights movement period. Um, and so, Hansberry both was a visionary. So you see her theories and ideas um, about um, what is possible in terms of freedom in her writing. But she also was actively involved in the prototypical ways of civil rights work, meaning she was picketing and she was fundraising and she was she participated. I, we haven't talked about this, but one of the most well-known events that Hansberry participates in is a meeting with um, Bobby Kennedy, who's the attorney general at the time, so the brother of John F. Kennedy. And so Bobby Kennedy calls James Baldwin and says he wants to have a meeting with some civil rights leaders to talk about um, the students who are, who are protesting in Birmingham. And so Baldwin calls a bunch of his friends, including Lorraine Hansberry, to meet with Bobby Kennedy. And in an essay, I have to say, and I say this to my students, you are gonna you are a blessed person if you have a friend who can write about you the way that Baldwin writes about Hans in the essay Sweet Lorraine. Mm. And in that essay, he recounts the story that I'm getting ready to tell you as well as talks about Hansbear in the most loving ways. Um and it's really is heartrending. And he writes it um, you know, as a eulogy to her as well. And so in the essay, Baldwin recalls that um Bobby Kennedy is getting frustrated with the um, with the people he has called to to talk with because he sees them as these famous representatives of the race and what he really wants them to do is to convince the students to stop protesting and to go home. And Hansberry says to him at one point, you shouldn't be looking to us for your instruction. You should be looking to the young activists on the ground for your instruction. And so this is one of the key moments for me about how Hansberry uses her fame to advance her politics. Because what she does in this moment is redirect the attention from the, as she says, the Black intelligentsia to the men and women on the ground. Um, And she has this lovely speech where she also recounts this event called, um, the speech is called We Are One People. And she says that there's no distinction between the Black intelligentsia and and the students on the street that she has no interest in having tea at the White House. What she's interested in is freedom. And so for me, one of the things that's really lovely is that you have this woman who is participating in politics in a very prototypical way, meeting with state leaders, protesting, participating in sit-ins. But at the same time, she's also a visionary in creating art that is, a, that, um, is left for us as a legacy for what we can still achieve.
1: Yeah, yeah. and And... You know thank goodness she was there because the artist has ways of looking at things at conceiving of things at imagining possibilities that uh, you know other others working in social science or or a whole range of other fields might not come up with and I think, yes, as you say that that imagination um, that 's there and and her um, she had this incredible generosity of spirit. Um, and I think that, again, as I said earlier, I think anybody interested in, in carving out a path as an activist um, should should definitely uh, look at her work and um, some of her choices on that on that particular road. Um, Soika, it has been such a pleasure to talk with you like this tonight. And as I said to Soika the other day, um, this is a book I'm gonna be coming back to mm-hmm. again and again, I know, in, in my own work. Um, and it's certainly um, brought Lorraine Hansbury alive to me in a way that, that no other work has before. So I'm immensely grateful for that and um, look forward to a continuing conversation on all of these things. Um, and very eager now to hear if we've got some questions from our audience um, about all of the things we've talked about. It's very hard to sandwich all that into an hour, but we did it. <laughs>
0: We do indeed have some questions, which I will read out. And thanks, Soika. This has been absolutely fascinating. Um, okay, we have one question here from Antonio Calcanio. Thank you so very much for your discussion. It is very illuminating. I learned so much and it was so engaging. It, it seems that Lorraine Hansberry had a rich yet fraught relationship with existentialism. So I'm wondering if you could say something about what her relationship was with black black Marxist philosophy or thought?
2: So I'm glad that you asked that question because Hansberry was both informed by um, black Marxism or black radicalism, depending on what language you wanna use um, and existentialist thought. And the ways that that came together were her really thinking about how labor and the material impact of one's um, participation in the world informed People's or had an interlocking effect with choices that were made. And so that is how Hansberry, to my mind, bridged the gap between um, Marxist thinkers who are thinking about um, an um, arc of events that will transform society and existentialists who are thinking about how an individual's choice has an impact on the individual. One of the things that I think would have been really powerful is if Hansberry had lived longer she might have had a chance to think with um Richard Wright um, for a longer period of time because he too was working at the intersection of Marxism and existentialism um and as I said she had this really scathing review of The Outsider but as we all know Wright just had a new novel that was just published this last year called The Man Who Lived Underground And if Hansberry had read that novel, she might have evaluated his thoughts on the two fields differently. Um, The last thing that I'll say about that is one of the things that I've more recently realized is that a lot of Black thinkers and thinkers in general, existentialists in general, um, were really informed by the local context that that were inhabiting them. And so when Wright is engaging with the existentialists, he's living in France. And he has a different perspective on what's happening in the U.S. than the U.S., than Blacks do in the United States. Conversely, Hansberry never leaves the U.S., as do a lot of her contemporaries. And so she's deeply informed by what's happening with the civil rights movement. And I think that those material impacts, the way that, again, the day-to-day activities, the lay, how labor is being impacted, as people move, how people are moving in the world, how that is impacted informs our understanding of of existentialism and the power of the individual to change the world.
0: Here is a question from Jillian. And um, the question is whether you could say something about realism and heightened language, but also this person would like to um, get a list in the chat of the models that you mentioned as co-inspirational with Hansberry, Um, Were any of them poets?
2: So one of, um, I can answer the first question, second question first that I want to forget. So, you know, the title of A Raised in the Sun is inspired by Langston Hughes's poem Harlem. And Langston Hughes, who is a poet, was one of Hansbury's mentors and a family friend. And as a matter of fact, on February 1st, I tweeted a image of the letter that Hansberry wrote to Langston Hughes asking for permission to use the line from his poem for Raising the Sun. And that letter is um, at the Beinecke Library at Yale University in the United States. And so, Hansberry had um, friends who, you know, Langston Hughes most namely who were poets, but then she also had a lot of friends and relationships with musicians who are not poets per se, but certainly are working in poetics, I would argue. And so we know well her friendship with Nina Simone, for example, again, Harry Belafonte, who many people might not know was also a musician um, as an actor, producer as well. Um, Mayor McCabe, who Hansberry was friends with, Abby Lincoln, all of these are musicians that she was friends with. Um, so that's what I would say. And then tell me, the, and then of course, now I forgot the first question. What was the first part of the question again? uh about uh realism and heightened language oh, really? so Hansberry um has this lovely quote where she pushes back against critics who say that Raisin in the Sun is naturalism and so Hansberry writes Raisin a good while um after Richard Wright's novel Native Son which is you know a um, huge success in the United States is also set in a kitchenette, is also set in Chicago, and is a naturalist novel. And so a lot of critics make the comparison between Hansberry's play and Wright's novel. And one of the things that Hansberry says is that naturalism just captures things. And for her, realism demonstrates not what, as I said before, what is, but also what is possible. And so I think that that's part of the heightened language that you see in the play. It's not just about how people, for example, speak to one another in a Chicago kitchenette in this moment, but also what is the possibility for their discourse? What type of conversations could happen? What are we seeking or grasping towards? What are the the implications of these conversations and how we might understand them as a part of a larger global conversation? And so that's part of what Hansberry was trying to capture in her realism.
0: Okay, uh, another question from Lauren. She's wondering about Robert B. Nemiroff's role in moving Lorraine Hansberry's work after her death. Uh, do you think that this is what she would have wanted? Did they plan this?
2: So let me just say that I had a great—I have a, had a much deeper appreciation for Robert Nimroth after I spent my time at the Schomburg. So when Hansberry leaves her papers to Nimrod, they're divorced. And um, throughout their marriage, um, he was aware that she was a lesbian. As I said, they spent most of their marriage living separately. Um, And so they had an unconventional marriage. Um, he, He was, to borrow a phrase from Toni Morrison, one of the greatest friends of her mind. So even after they separated, they no longer had a romantic relationship. He was still her first reader. He gave her feedback on her drafts. He helped to um, encourage her to continue writing. He served as a sounding board. And the the evidence for this is all the notes that you see in her um, drafts of her plays of him giving her feedback and her writing in her journal about the interactions that she's having with him. And so he um, becomes a great steward for her papers because he's so helpful in stewarding and and supporting her as she's developing her work while she's alive. Um, I think that Nimrod has to make decisions about things that hands-brain him that they do not discuss. And I'm sure that some of us could second guess some of the decisions that he makes. But I also think that at least for me, there was some compassion for thinking about the position he was in as a white man stewarding the legacy of this Black woman first and wanting to make sure that he did it in a way that would continue for her legacy to flourish for years to come. And so, you know, again, I think that there are lots of things that we could question and parts of her that we don't know till much later because of how the trust is guarded. But at the same time, He helps to produce Sign, he helps to produce LeBlanc, the musical, to be young, gifted, and Black. He helps to um, have several of the plays published after her death. Much of the work that's in circulation is because of him and his stewardship. So in all of those ways, and I will say the immaculate care that there are for papers and the fact that we can go to the archive now and read all of this unpublished work is in part because of his diligence and that of the subsequent executors. Shout out to... um, Joel Nimroff who's the current executor and I would not have been able to write my book without her. Um, So I say all that to say that I think that there's lots of things we could second guess but ultimately I think the sum total was positive for Hansberry's legacy.
0: Catherine says, I was struck by Soika's remark regarding the gendered understanding of intellectual through which Hansberry was long viewed and descriptions of her as a housewife. I wonder, as her biographer, how you navigated the need, perhaps, to defend her intellectual credentials versus a resistance to buying, in, uh, buying into there being any need to do so, given the clear evidence from her work and life.
2: I'm glad that it feels very clear to you. That's encouraging. Um, and I certainly don't want to disparage the categories of housewife. Um, I think that, you know, obviously it's an important role in our society. Um, What I was hoping to try to indicate in that comment was that that was the only way Hansberry could be imagined at that time period, or one of the only ways. And also that, again, I'm grateful to be able to be a part of this conversation because I think that most mainstream audiences think of Hansberry as a woman who wrote a play, a very successful play a play that is one of the most often taught plays in U.S. secondary schools Um, that still circulates and is produced in colleges and universities throughout the world. It's been translated into, you know, dozens of languages. I, I mean, by every account, it's been produced on Broadway three times, an extraordinarily successful play. But a woman who wrote a play, many people don't know that she even wrote other plays. So I do think that um most people don't realize that she was an intellectual and that during her lifetime, if you read the interviews and the conversations that she has, there's great resistance to understanding her from her interviewers, at least, and her interlocutors as an intellectual. And so both during her time and then just in how we have um, engaged with her legacy over time, there hasn't been space for that. And I do think that that's part of how you know, we think about intellectual history, at least in the U.S., and who gets counted as a part of intellectual histories. And so both in terms of reception in her time period and then how she's been incorporated into the stories that we tell today, there is a limit of our understanding of her as an intellectual. And I'm glad that now that um, she's seen in that way, more it's more easy to see her in that context.
0: Any more questions from anyone? I don't see any listed in the Q and A. So if, if you are out there with a question, please do submit it. I have one while we're waiting. Um, I've been teaching a course in feminist philosophy and looking at the history of the women's movement, largely from the U.S., and I'm really struck by the way. Um, maybe it's just the 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 kind of canonization of uh, the Women's Liberation Movement tax, but I'm really struck by the segregation or the the, the compartmentalization of uh, the Women's Liberation Movement and the Civil Rights Movement. And so a lot of the Black women who were uh, very much involved in the Women's Movement in the 1960s are considered to be part of the, the American Civil Rights Movement and not necessarily part of the Women's Liberation Movement. And I don't know if you want to comment on that or if if there's um, something unique here to Hansberry. I I don't know.
2: Well, you know, this is pre-intersectionalism before we even had that as a term to think about people's multiplicity. And so the way that Hansberry grappled with that lack of understanding is that she would constantly try to prod the presumptions of her given audience. And so when she wrote her letters to the latter, she asked them to think about race. When she was writing for leftist periodicals, she often asked them to think about the experience of women and think about gender. Um, And similarly, when she was writing to black periodicals. And so Hansberry always tried to draw attention to the blind spots and the parts of the movements that she was engaging with but they rarely intersected. And so one of the things that I think made her voice really unique is that there were very few times where she felt completely at home. I think that sometimes when she was with Baldwin and when she was with Nina Simone, she could be her complete self. When she was with Robert Nimrod, she could be her complete self. But those times were few and far between, Often when she was hanging out with her queer friends, she was the only black person or one of few. When she was hanging out with her friends in the movement, in the civil rights movement, she was one of the only women. And they didn't know that, many of them didn't know that she was queer at the time. Um, And so, and when she was hanging out, you know, leftist thinking about her own misgivings about her fame and then the um, financial security that came along with that. And so she really struggled and wrestled with how she was, On the outside, really, of many of the communities that she embraced and was deeply invested in, both personally as well as intellectually. Um, And I think that that gave her a really unique and powerful perspective. Um, And it also gives us some early texts to think about as precursors to the Kumbahi River Collective or to some of our late 20th century meditations at the intersection of gender, sexuality, and race, um, and how the women's movement comes to grapple with questions around sexuality and race later on, but how Hansberry in the you know 1950s and early 1960s was also thinking through some of these questions.
0: Thank you for that. Uh, there are no more questions in the Q&A. So Brian, I'll turn it over to you if you want to have any last words and soika you can you have your last words
1: just just following on from from the last things that that we've been discussing it, one of the things that's it's so moving too because she's she's struggling and 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 attempting to speak in in different voices to different audiences and and to hopefully eventually bring them together um one of the things that's so moving about her place in the theater is the way in which, I mean, she inspired such loyalty from so many people. Um, And if you read the the stories of the productions, both of Sidney Brustein and of Les Blancs, then the range of people who got involved in trying to make sure that these works got performed, that once they were performed, that that it was possible to sustain these productions over time, keep them running, um, uh, get larger and larger audiences to them. So uh, it's, it's so fascinating that, that, you know, yes, she had these moments where perhaps she felt, you know, I want to bring all these different worlds together. And yet it's so complicated and I'm exhausted. But she did it. I mean, she did it when you look at the if you just read the range of people who got involved in the campaign to keep Sidney Brewstein running in New York, it's phenomenal. It's everybody from Marlon Brando to, uh, yeah, just, it's, it's, just incredible. Um, and I think that says something about who she was, that, that she inspired immense loyalty from people and, and a kind of devotion, um, yeah. and, you know, and in somebody so young and still in formation, um,
2: Absolutely. So I focus some on Hansberry struggling, but I should also say one of the things that comes out in learning about her is how funny she, and this comes out in her playwriting, how funny she was, you know, how she could be the life of the party, how she loved to dance and joke, um, how she loved to argue, which also comes out in, you know, her um, <laughs> and the encounter. She loved to, she loved to debate. And I I tell my students that if she were alive today, she probably would be undefeated on Twitter because she never met uh, a New York Times mistake that she didn't correct. She (laughs) never met um, something that she didn't want to enter in a conversation. And so she was definitely, you know, um, publicly engaged, fierce, funny, um, you know, outspoken. And all of that, I think, endeared her to her communities as well. And so as with most of us, you know, depending on when you were engaging with her, you might see a different side of her personality. And I, and you, I definitely get the the sense that um, part of the reason she was so beloved is because she had these wonderful, this wonderful humor to her um, mm-hmm. that you know helped to create community even in the midst of some trying times. And so I'm happy that we're we're drawing to a close on that note because part of what is inspiring about her too was her ability to draw people together. Um, and to really forge these relationships that have, as you said, um continued to make her work available to us in the present, whether it's through the production of sign as she as she was passing away or through later on the blanc, um, or through the um stewardship of To Be Young Gifted in Black, which was again also helped to her friends helped to produce after she passed away.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I and mean, then of course
2: the Nina Simone song that is based on the title yeah. that boy.
1: Yeah. And I, do, I, th- I think again, anybody interested in in friendship and thinking about and writing about friendship, she she strikes me as one of the great figures um, of of articulating friendship and 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 performing friendship. Um, she was a great friend, I think, to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, this has been wonderful. I, I've so enjoyed this, and I I really do hope we'll be able to continue involving Lorraine Hansberry's. Um, work and memory in in this enterprise of the Society for Women of Ideas Um, and so it's just been such a pleasure to have you with us and we're really looking forward to to following your work and um, let's hope we get some more productions going of of these amazing plays Um, and uh, yes we'll, we'll certainly want to keep this this conversation going thank you again so much for being with us Thank you all who've joined us on this snowy night in Toronto. <laughs> uh-huh. um, and uh, I, we hope I to will see you again in March. Yeah, Diane.
0: Well, I will just echo Brian in thanking Soeika. It's been really interesting and really interesting evening. And thanks everybody for coming. And thank you very much, Brian, for uh, guiding the conversation tonight. Pleasure. All right. Have a good night, all. Thank you so much. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night.